Captain. Let's move. ABC Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. Get down! With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19, all new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Hello, everyone. I'm Jinx Monsoon, and welcome to Hi, Jinx, with me, Jinx Monsoon. Today, my guest is screenwriter and all-around brilliant person, Russell T. Davis. You may know Russell from Doctor Who, Queer as Folk, most recently Years and Years, or It's a Sin, But I know him as a very nice person who gave a speech at my wedding. (laughs) He's one of my dear friends, and we have a lovely conversation. And I'm so excited for you to hear it today on Hi Jinx. So buckle up, hunker down, and sink your teeth into some brand new Hi Jinx. M. Oh. Mom! Hello everyone, I'm Jinx Monsoon, and welcome to Hi Jinx, a podcast where I, an internationally tolerated drag superstar, get to interview compelling and fascinating people about how they became who they are and why they do what they do. Today we are joined by screenwriter, TV producer of many of your favorite shows, and a personal friend who gave a speech at my wedding. (laughs) It's Russell T. Davis. Hi, Russell. Hi, Jinx. (laughs) How are you doing today? I'm good. I haven't seen seen you. Everyone's been queuing up with you to say congratulations. I'm so (laughs) welcome, darling. That's the most amazing thing you did there. Amazing. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much, Russell. You do turn my head so. Where in the world are you? It must have been terrifying. You must have been like, you've done this a minute. Everything's everything's terrifying to me, Russell. That's true. I know that feeling. Where am I? I'm in. You, you can. I'm here in Manchester, in the north of England, which is my home. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Um. Now, you have created so many wonderful television programs. You're an amazing writer. Um. But I want to ask. What's your beef with Wales? You're from Wales, but then you kill off your Welsh characters. <laughs> I'm coming to terms with my family. <laughs> Is that self-deprecation humor? Is that a, a little self-loathing or is it just tongue-in-cheek? <laughs> no, not self-loathing. I love myself. I think I'm marvellous. <laughs> um, it is therapy, right? You know, there's writing is therapy, creating anything, singing a song, writing a song is therapy. It's all, unfortunately, it never works. Otherwise, if it worked, we'd stop. <laughs> I mean, so I'm very, very glad that you just, I just sit here. This is literally, I'm sitting in my chair where I sit and write. I, I've been here in this chair for like 30 years and I just keep churning it out and you never get to the bottom of it all, do you? I, it's the opposite. If I kill off a lot of Welsh people, it's it's actually the opposite because you never see enough Welsh people on screen, on television. It's a thing. When uh, you see the Scottish, you see the Irish, you never see enough. When I was young, Jinx, when I was young, I'd be playing in the street with my young, fresh, green-boned thing that I was. My <laughs> father would come to the door and call us in if a Welsh person appeared on the television. I don't get it. It was a thing. It was because like, it just didn't happen. It just didn't happen. He lived there. There's a great old actress called Margaret John 
she was the one who always broke through the barrier and she'd appear in cop shows, you know, being a poor Welsh widow. And he'd literally stand in the door and go, come in, come in, Margaret John's on the television. The Z cars. <laughs> there was an old police show called Z cars, uh, or Z cars, I suppose you'd call it. And um, we get called in. So genuinely, I'm not kidding, I grew up with that. So now I do love to put, it's a bit better than it was, but it's, we're still, we're still lagging behind the Scottish and the Irish. So I still like to put them on screen. It's my thing. Wow. I, I, I love to get a glimpse into the process. May I ask, um, this may be gauche to ask, but are you close personal friends with Dame Shirley Bassey? And when <laughs> I, can you set up a meeting? <laughs> I wish. I, no, I've never met her. I've never met her. T- I'm half a Welshman. That's terrible. <laughs> I, I, literally, I grew up in a household where she was godlike to my mum and dad. I mean, actually, she's the Welsh person you'd see on telly. Of course, she would. She would appear. That and there was a singer called Mary Hopkins. You know, an old song called "Those Were the Days." Those were the days, my friend. We thought they'd never end. Yes, I do know that song. Lovely, beautiful old song. And she was another Welsh singer, the only other Welsh singer who I think someone in my family once taught. Mary Hopkins. It was long blonde hair. That's a great, great <laughs> song. So it was the, when I was young, it was Shirley Bassey and Mary Hopkins, and that was it for the culture. That was it. Often <laughs> 2,000 years of Druids, that was the rest of the culture. But um, we had some work to do that. <laughs> well, um, I'm happy to learn about Welsh people problems. You know, I... <laughs> Moving swiftly. First, <laughs> I think the first time I went to um, Cardiff um, for a show, I hadn't really known about the... I hadn't really known about the what do we call it? The clash between the Welsh and the British. Yeah. <laughs> Quite a clash with Welsh and the English, yeah, yeah. Quite a clash. We were I mean, we see the Welsh hundreds of years ago were conquered by the English. People always say there's lots of castles in Wales, which is all very pretty people. Oh, what lovely countryside you've got, what lovely castles you've got. All those castles are actually torture centres built by our oppressors. <laughs> they are built every five or ten miles so that they could say to the little Welsh people running around, we own this place, we're going to capture you, we're going to put you in the dungeons, and we're going to torture you. That's what they are, those pretty castles. They're shows of power. And um, <laughs> the English came along, I'm off now, the English came along and stamped out the Welsh language. So much so that in schools in like the 19th century, there was a thing called the Welsh Knot, which was a board, a child in school, board on a chain would put around their necks saying Welsh not if they ever spoke Welsh by mistake it was forbidden to do that so they'd be punished for doing it and and the Welsh language really was almost destroyed but in the past the past 50 60 years it's all past 100 years really it started to come back because people have realized what a terrible thing that is so it's years and years of oppression jinx it's wonder that I'm so no wonder I'm so angry <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, you, uh, you know, there's just so many um, misconceptions, misperceptions. I don't know. Um, I, I get nervous talking to writers. I'm always like, should I? I have to choose my words so carefully because yeah, they're going to read into power. everything I say. That's foul. <laughs> Honestly, no, it's um, I, you know. As an American, um, growing up with, you know, only really learning about um, the UK through yeah. American history and what we see on television. I've got yeah. a bit in my show about how I was, you know, I grew up just thinking of England as the epitome of class and culture. <laughs> and then I went there the first time and I realized the UK is just like the US, but with bad lighting. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and um, we love anorex. But, but obviously, I um, obviously I I love the UK. I married a local. I'm basically bilingual now. Um, <laughs> I I mentioned it in your intro, but you did indeed give a speech at mine and Michael's wedding. Um, one of the one of the first things I think Michael brought up. Um, oh, he's gonna hate me for saying this at all. Let's go. Um, let's 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 see how endearingly I can tell this story. I think he said something, and I'm paraphrasing, but along the lines of 
don't worry, your celebrity doesn't doesn't have any effect on me. I'm friends with Russell T. Davis. <laughs> <laughs> I can remember I can remember when he phoned me up and it was an old-fashioned phone call when he said, I'm leaving Manchester. And I was like, oh no, we're leaving that. He said, I'm chucking my job in. I was like, oh, it took you so long to get that job. He said, I'm giving up the flat. I was like, oh, it took you so long to get that flat because I've met someone. I was like, oh, for God's sake. And he said, I'm going on tour with him. I was like, what? And he said, you doing what? And he said, it's Jinx Monsoon. <laughs> I, I mean, he was kind enough to say, it's Jinx Monsoon who won Drag Race 3. I'm like, you don't need to say that then. <laughs> I literally sat there going, are you sure? I mean, imagine when your friend does that. That's just ridiculous. And I was like going, I said, thinking, is this just a Jinx Monsoon tribute act? Are you sure? <laughs> are you really sure this is the real person? And then, James, I checked up on you then. I got reference because I thought, my friend's running off with a complete man. Man, I'm not going to be happy with this. And I literally phoned him and going, anyone know Jinx Monsoon? And every single person said how lovely you are. Oh. So that is true. I would genuinely, <laughs> I'm not intervene, but I would have said, Michael, what are you doing? If people had said, oh, she's off her head. But, <laughs> but everyone said, oh my God, that's the loveliest person you'll ever meet. So hooray oh, for you. That's so sweet. You know, yes. um, Michael <laughs> and I, we've just had a wonderful time in the last three and a half years and you have been peppered throughout our <laughs> our joint experiences um it was so kind of you to give such a lovely speech at our wedding with props um you actually had yes. the prop tardis and i think you had a, a globe or something and and it was wonderful um visual learning for everyone <laughs> Oh my god, oh, yeah. it was long. I thought Zoom wedding it was going to be all, but everyone had to say something, and then there's connectivity <laughs> issues. But anyway, enough about <laughs> me, and uh, let's talk about. So, as you said, you've been you've been a writer for thirty mm. plus years. Recently, on your Instagram, you were posting um, poster images of, of past shows you've worked on. Every and show whatever. Yes, 30 shows in 30 years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The list just goes on and on. Granted, yeah. in the UK, you know, like a, a, a season of a show, a series of a show is like six episodes. So you could cram a lot in there, right? But... Um, <laughs> But not Doctor Who. Let's start with no. Doctor Who because oh, Doctor Who keeps, I think it keeps being reborn. I mean, that's a big part of the show is rebirth and it, it's been reimagined over and over and over. And you are, what do we call you? The, 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 bra I'm a the brain, <laughs> the midwife. <laughs> One of them. You, you haven't worked on every um, season of Doctor Who, but you've worked on many seasons of yeah, Doctor but Who. It's, uh, it's like literally next year. It's six years old next year. It's, I'm 60 years old next year. So it's it's an old show. When my father was calling us in from the street, we'd also run in on a Saturday night to go and watch Doctor Who. It's literally my first television memory ever. Probably my first memory is an old black and white episode of Doctor Who. I, I know it's a memory one because it's an episode that's so old it's missing from the archives. It was burnt in the 1970s when they oh. didn't know that they didn't realise that VHS and DVD and archive stuff would ever be used again. So they just burned them. But I remember it in my head. I can remember the first Doctor Regenerating. I can remember the first Dalek story after that. And they are literally missing from the archives. They do not exist anymore. So I've oh. always loved it. It's in my blood. It's absolutely the very first proper thing I wrote, which is 31 years ago now in 19. 91 was a thing called Dark Season, which is a children's thriller, which is just Doctor Who under a different name, really. It was just me writing my version of Doctor Who and putting it on screen. So I've always been there. So it's it's in the blood tanks. I love it. I love it. I love it. And I know, didn't you spend a lot of time watching the, the Donna Noble episodes, didn't you? Um, you were there. We spent, um, Michael and I were, because I'm a, I'm a big TV person. Michael's a fair weather TV person. Yes. You know, he, he, he's usually reading three books at a time. And when he wants to watch TV, he wants to, you know, we have different philosophies. I like 
TV as background noise while I'm working. I like to watch comedy and animated series, or I like to watch like um, supernatural horror. Michael oh. really likes like human drama, um, <laughs> interpersonal dramas, um, <laughs> stories with a purpose. And then, of course, he watches documentaries. And I, I, he was really into the circle for a moment. That kind of threw me for a little bit. Oh, what's and- <laughs> Oh, I like the circle. Oh God! Did he make? <laughs> yeah, you'll have to go call him after this. And talk oh, about I didn't this know stuff. that. Right, we'll have to swap notes. I love that show. <laughs> but Doctor Who um, was one of the shows that Michael and I could agree on, and oh. we would watch it before bed. Um, uh, on one of our longer stays together. Cause as you know, we are still yeah. a long distance relationship, but enough yeah. on that. Um, we watched, I think we, I always forget the uh, name of the actor who was Dr. Who in the first series, but we watched, right. yeah. yes. we, we started there and we watched all the way until um, the introduction of Matt Smith. So we, we watched all of the David um, Tennant series. And when we got to Matt Smith, I was like, oh, look who's regenerated here. Um, but then it, Michael's Boy, visit was up. So I promised I wouldn't watch on without him. So that'll be our uh, our, our next binge. Oh, as we got that to come. That's glorious. Glorious. <laughs> oh, we've so much fun, darling. So much fun. So what was it like growing up with this television show and then getting to create it and give it its voice and reimagine it in a new time and with a... With a budget, <laughs> it's 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 to this day it's still very strange. But in some ways, I kind of don't look back. It kind of happened and it took off, and it, it's literally like a dream coming true. It's a show I always wanted to make when I was little. I was drawing comic strips about Doctor Who, and when I was eighteen, I was start, start the very first things I started to write were do scripts, I'd send them off, you know, no agent, I'd just bash them out on a typewriter, that's how long ago we're talking, I'd bash them out on a typewriter and send them off. So to actually get there is, um, I think some part of me still doesn't quite believe it, and not actually to get there, but then for that to work, I mean, really, in the classic telling of this tale, it should fail and I should die with a whiskey bottle in the corner of a bar. It's that's the normal version of this story, but it worked. And it took off, and it's still running, and now I'm going back to it. So it's a very puzzling thing. It, 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 I, in a way, I don't think about it much because I don't know. You know what it's I think you know what it's like. It's like success doesn't teach you much, does it? Failure is a much more interesting. <laughs> so what do you learn from success except the terror of it never happening again? Whereas failure, you can sit there and think, oh, I should do that. Mm, I'll do that. Okay, I got that wrong. Um, so when something's successful, I don't really think about it much. Just, um, just move on. That's a really, you know, that's a really great way of putting it because, um, yeah, I mean, one thing I've learned in my 10 years working at this level is that the best thing you can do after a job well done is um, pat yourself on the back and think about what job you want to do next because (laughs) I mean you have to take time to celebrate you have to take time to reward yourself after a big accomplishment but languishing in your accomplishments I don't know that's never interested me and I'm terrible at taking compliments so you know once I've done something I'm really proud of my brain is just like okay and now how am I going to use this to get to the next thing I'd like to do I think that's a creative brain. I don't think that's a fault. I don't think that's a flaw. I think that's, that's how do you language? Oh my God. It's uh, and and you kind of need the fear of the next thing, don't you? You need the terror and the the, the mountain to climb. That's, that, that, that's where the thrill is. <laughs> well, um, I think with 30 years under your belt, you've got some job security at this point, Russell. But... You know what? You never even think that, don't you? You, 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 you still think. Yeah, I still I still save. I save my money very, very well. I look after. I don't spend money like a man thinks. I just in case for that rainy day, 
comes along. It's true, yeah. It's just I'm still ready to be unemployed at any moment. I'm 60 now, so eventually <laughs> people just shut me down and say that's enough. So, <laughs> when will he, when will you accept that you're all right? <laughs> you're doing all right. <laughs> it's true, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because then I'd imagine flying to a halt. Then it'd be like it'd be like like a shark thinking, how do I swim? And it would just sink to the bottom of the ocean. So I'm comparing myself to a shark now. I don't know how. <laughs> hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. I'd like to talk about lots of um, the things that you've written, but I'm, of course, going to focus on the things that I've seen so that we can have a lively discussion. But let's let's stick on Doctor Who for a little bit. And first, I'd like to know, is there freedom in writing science fiction or is there pressure to constantly be thinking up the next twist, constantly be thinking up the next, like, the sci-fi, uh, t- uh, you know, storyline, sci- uh, sci-fi story arc, uh, giving your audience enough of the time travel and <laughs> what's it like balancing that freedom and that pressure of, um, yes, you know, exactly. basically That's- being able to write whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> I know. What you've just described is any job, actually, though, or any creative job. It's mm-hmm. like they're all like that. It's like doing what you want. I mean, I imagine writing a song is like I can go anywhere, go anywhere, take a tune anywhere. You talk about songs because I'm, um, I'm uh, kind of writing a song with someone at the moment. That's hard work. But um, <laughs> it's and, and yet you've got to deliver. You know, it's a, it's the art and the science at the same time, and and, and also the business. You've got to deliver. Mm-hmm. You know, it's. I, I talk and I mentor to a lot of young writers and uh, I do a lot of that because you've got to pay it back. And um, the number one the number one thing I say to them is save, save your money so you never have to do a job for the, for the money. Um, but the most important, actually, the number one thing, that's number two, number one thing is deliver. All people want is someone who delivers. It's like you don't have to be the best writer in the world, but if you deliver on, you promise the script on a Monday morning and you deliver on the Monday morning, you're ahead of the rest of the field. And you know, over the years, honestly, over the years of people, it's you know, people can be sometimes people are jealous of the stuff of the amount of stuff I've done or, or what I've done. I've met people who think I shouldn't have been given that platform or shouldn't have had that chance. And, and I just sit there with them saying, I deliver. You can be there, you can be there, or as jealous as you like, or you wish the drama had done this, or you wish the drama had done that. But I bet you would have taken five years to deliver it. And I delivered it on Monday morning when it was due. So there is that technical business side to it that mm-hmm. I like, and I'm good. I do deliver. So, um, so that that's always there. You're never completely free, and you're mm-hmm. never completely free of it. But I do sometimes. I do some. I do sometimes. Sometimes you watch things like those Marvel movies. I think imagine writing with no concept of a budget. You can really truly go anywhere. Yeah. Anything. I'm sure they would sit on their Zoom and say, oh my God, we have a bunch of problems just like everyone else. But when you, when you really say, you can go to that planet and there are ostriches that fly and, and there are mines and mountains and gold in the air, you know, you can do absolutely anything. <laughs> and, and I never feel the freedom. Television's never like that. Television, although I work on shows with nice budgets, you never have that. So, so it's never complete freedom. Never. Uh, and maybe I, what I'm saying is maybe it should be. I do sit at this desk thinking, why don't you just forget? What would you write if you could just write anything and go anywhere and do anything? But that pressure to deliver is always over my shoulder, and so I never get those those free months or those free weeks in, in which I could explore that. So, um, but that's what makes it good. And all these pressures, you know, this the, the, the delivery, the fact that it's got a fit, it's got a fit a budget. They're actually very good, good strengths. They're constraints that everyone's always had. Um, yeah, 
You don't think of a, I think maybe poets sit there carving one word a week, and that must be very nice. But then they starve. They starve. Who made some poetry? No one. There's no truly free industry. That's a that's a very you know that's all very astute. That's exactly. I mean, I'm sitting here thinking like, oh, I sit down at the computer and I think, okay, Space Queen, Arachnid, uh, <laughs> mind control in uh, 1670. Here we go. Let's write it. I've seen your show. I love that last show. But I lost all your card if you win us. And I love that show. And that show was clever and structured. You know, oh, had all the alien you. elements in it and then futuristic <laughs> elements in it. And it was gorgeous. But it was disciplined. You had a proper well, discipline. Yeah. I mean, I do like I, I, I think you're very right that constraints some of the fun is in the constraints. Some of the fun is in the challenge. Like how do I make this? I mean, that's kind of what you are doing when you're writing for live entertainment is yeah. I want this magical thing to happen on stage, but then there's the yeah. practicality of how do I get that costume to change into that costume? And how do yeah. I how do I how do I take us back in the past 20 years while we're live on stage? And how do I get the audience to go with me on that and suspend their disbelief? And so there's all kinds of constraints writing for live entertainment, but that's the most fun because then when you see how you tackle those constraints, that's where that's where the joy is, is like, how did they pull it off? And did they make a joke about it? Did they lean into it? Did they actually like trick me into believing this happened? You know, all of those things are what make the the challenge of writing and, and performing a piece exciting. Yes. And then that's where you get the payoff. That's where you feel good and give yourself the pat on the back is when you're like, yeah. oh, I had that constraint. We tackled it. And uh, now the audience is rolling on the floor with laughter. So. Yeah, especially, <laughs> yeah, especially live. You must get that more than a scripted form is live. You get, the, you get the laugh, you get the punch, you get the joy right on the spot. That's it's glorious to be in that audience when it happens. It's wonderful. Yeah, how do you handle that delayed gratification of um, not getting to see your punchline yeah. play out until? <laughs> I kind of I do laugh at my own stuff. To be honest, it's like I, mean, I do. I know if something works, and I know if it doesn't as well. So um, if it works, it's just me sitting. I do watch. I literally watch everything on transmission, and um, I mean we're headed. We're, we're, Transmissions being an old-fashioned thing now. Now the series are dropping on streaming and stuff like that. But in the days of old-fashioned transmission, or something's going out at nine o'clock at night. I do sit and watch it. I don't think you ever know what it's like. I mean, it's a bit live in that sense. This is changing now, but it's a bit like live in the sense that I don't think you know what it's like until that Monday night. And it goes out at nine o'clock, depending on what the weather's like, depending on what the mood is like. If the queen's just died, if whatever's just happened, you did what the actual mood in the air is, and then you watch it. And you know, I'd have sat in the edit 27 times and watched it 27 times, but you actually watch it that night and you go, Oh, that's what works. Oh, that does. Yeah. Oh, that does. Oh, I think it works. Like that. But yeah. so yeah, that's that's as close as I get to the live experience. I envy that live experience because it's lovely. It's really lovely. It's a reward. You think properly rewarded. Yeah. Well, I mean, I I'm not up there doing it because I uh, you know, <laughs> no, I'm joking. I was gonna say because uh, I care about the material, but then I remember I write the material. So anyway, uh, <laughs> you um, care about that material, of course. Um, my next Doctor Who question um, really has less to do with the Doctor Who of it all. But um, as you brought up, uh, Donna Noble is my favorite of the companions because oh. she's portrayed by a personal hero, comedy icon, Catherine Tate. Um, oh, did you, you knew Catherine's work anyway. You knew. Uh, yes, I, I love the Catherine Tate show. Um, oh. I've seen her on the less, um, the, the less exciting seasons of the American Office. <laughs> <laughs> But and of course, you know, she's a redhead, so I have to I have to rally behind oh, her. But oh, she's just absolutely. Oh, I love her. Isn't she amazing? Yeah, I I I I wonder how that came about taking um such a comedic icon, putting her in a, a, a sci-fi show. I'm not sure where she was at in 
her career when she did Doctor Who, but it felt pretty significant that, like, you know, yes, Catherine Tate was, on Doctor Who. <laughs> oh, no, she was big, because she initially came in for just one episode, so we got her in, mm-hmm. like, a guest on it. And she was big, she already had the Catherine Tate show on. Um, you know, when someone's that big, you kind of think, well, we're just getting them for one episode. And, um, yeah. And and for she, you know, none of us knew her. None of us had ever worked with her. I thought she was a brilliant actor. Then I used to I used to watch that show. It's not just funny that show. I think she's yeah. Look, I think I, I work a lot with comedians. I think with funny actors because I think I think anyone can stand in the rain and cry. But I think bring <laughs> a joke is a proper skill on camera every time. I think it, I think once you can do that, you can do everything else. And I love that. and I think I write funny actually. When I'm writing a serious yeah. scene. My dialogue's very ping pong, ping pong, ping pong, ping pong, like that. It kind of bounces and it comedy rhythms suited. It just, you know, David Tenter, very, very funny actor. And um, so I kind of, I loved what she was doing. I thought, oh my God, she's a brilliant actor. I wasn't daft. I thought this would be huge for Doctor Who. It was a Christmas Day episode, The Runaway Bride. I thought that, but, you know, we need big stars. We need to pull people in. And, um, and so we approached her, not knowing she'd be remotely interested. Quite by chance, she absolutely adored David Tennant and wanted to work with him. She literally, she's only, she knows her stuff, Catherine. She'd been studying him for years. She loved it. She'd gone to see him on stage. Anything he, he did on television, she watched. So they they became best friends after they'd done one episode together. They're still best friends to this day. So she kind of leapt at us. What we thought was a shot in the dark. She threw us up at us. Oh my God, yes, please, come and do that. And then she enjoyed it so much that we kind of went, you know, she had this huge career. We kind of went, you don't suppose you fancy giving up a whole year of your life to come and be the full-time companion? Yes, she said, like that. Yes. I could not believe it. I, to this day, I'm, I'm still amazed that she did that, when when she could pick and choose and do whatever she wanted. Yes, she said, because she loved it. And 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 and, and she loved Donna, but she specifically loved working with David. That was, it was a year of joy with the two of them. So isn't it funny? It's like, if we don't ask, you don't get. I would have thought yeah. we'd have and then, and what a lovely time that was. Wonderful, wonderful. That's such a lovely story. You, um, as we've already discussed, you've, you've written many, many things, 30 years, 30 programs. One that's very significant to me, and I'm sure many people my age um, are also familiar. I'll, I'll admit I'm definitely more familiar with the the American version. It seems like a lot of your shows get Americanized. <laughs> but if you hadn't created the show, there would have been no American version for me to watch <laughs> as a young queer te- teen in America. Let's talk about Queer as Folk, yeah. um, which was... I have an anecdote in my notes saying that it was originally going to be titled The Other End of the Ballroom. It and was then that one time Queer yeah. as Fuck. And Queer then we fuck. and then we landed on Queer as Folk, probably for the censors. Um yeah. how did this come about? And how did this come about and tell me what it was like getting a show about queer people picked up mm. at a time when there was nothing. <laughs> It was, again, I look back and think how lucky I was because there's always been lots of queer writers around. We were all the gays, the lesbians, all of us doing up. Um, um, but in a way, we, we almost didn't believe that we could be heard. And I, again, I'm just lucky. I've been working on soap operas for years, throughout the 90s, and creating my own soap operas here in Manchester. And I always put gay characters in. I had a lesbian vicar, a gay school boys, a, gay, a marriage with a gay best man who was secretly in love with a groom, which turned out to be bisexual. I did all those I hate to interrupt, but I just like to point out that, I mean, like, that you were doing that. It, it, it's crazy for me to hear that that was happening in the UK when mm. in America it wasn't until if gay characters were introduced onto a show, it was one episode. They were there <laughs> as either to teach a magical lesson about prejudice or <laughs> they were just, you know, the butt of a joke, you know, uh-huh. queer characters were really, really sparse in American mainstream media. And it was yeah. either tragedy or clown. You know, there was no in-between. They weren't just regular people. They were there to provide tragedy or they were there to p- provide comic relief, uh, deliver a catchphrase or something like that. 
that was it. Until Will and Grace and around the same time, the American version of Queer as Folk. So it's kind of, I mean, it's amazing to hear that you were able to write uh, queer characters into your work for so long. But to then create a show where it was queer focused, queer storylines, queer led characters. um, It's funny because I I realized saying this, that when I say I put those characters into soap operas for the 90s, they weren't big primetime soap operas. They were kind of niche. And this place called Granada Television, which is a great industry factory in Manchester, which is a wonderful place. Spilled all the slots of the schedules that no one else wanted. So, like lunchtime soaps, Sunday afternoon soaps, 10 30 <laughs> soaps, channels that only just sprung into existence soaps. So, these weren't the big soaps in Britain, the big evening uh, shows. And um, But it was so, the, the little niche things tucked away in the corner. So, it wasn't prime time. So, but I was so learning. all the times Americans would be watching Judge Judy, those are the same times last <laughs> yes. year. That's right. We have so called revelations about a, a bishop's family and his murderous wife. That was my favorite. I invented that. <laughs> bishop with the murderous wife and the, the bisexual son. Gorgeous. And there was one called Spring Hill. There was mad, they were mad shows. And not many people watched these. They were tucked away in the corners of the schedule, but they were training grounds. There were a lot of us who went on to create a lot of gay and lesbian and queer characters in the 2000s who all worked on these shows. We didn't realise it, but we were in a great training ground. And then I, st- I started to put them into prime time. I had an episode of a thing that was like Downton Abbey. It was called The Grand. And it was about a hotel in Manchester in the 1920s, about staff and the guests and I had a gay barman in that and who I preferred that character to every other character and then one week I was like oh fuck off with all the subplots I'm just going to write a story about the gay barman so an hour of gayness and um and that got made and literally the thing is my writing literally got better I literally wrote that better than anything else had ever written because I was at home I'd opened the door yeah. and found myself at home I don't even at home actually I found myself facing that mountain, that scary mountain. Both, both. It was home because it was comfortable and it was relaxed and I knew where I was. Also, it's a great big scary mountain because you've got to make it good and you've got to deliver and you've got to deliver something to all those gay people watching who really want something. So I kind of, to be honest, I soared with that episode. It was a lovely, lovely piece of tally. Lovely actor called Paul Warriner played Clive, the gay barman. In 1920, can you imagine being gay in 1920? You don't have the language, you have no one to turn to. Um, uh, except for the very rich people. Um, so someone saw that, uh, a fantastic woman called Katrina McKenzie saw that, and her boss, Gump Neal. And uh, they saw that, and they said, you write gay very well, being gay, obviously. Come and write gay for us, because they were moving to a channel called Channel 4 in Britain, which is designed and is still designed to show stuff that other channels won't make. It's meant to be a more more adult channel, a more controversial channel, a more minority channel, a more diverse channel. That's still true to this day. They're the ones who made It's a Sin for me last year. Um, so actually, it was, it was, it's funny because you talk about Will and Grace, it's like this was rising up everywhere. It wasn't, it wasn't just Will and Grace. It, I think in every writer's room, on every show, the world was changing. So as the world changed, um, writers' voices began to change. It really was genuinely cumulative. You know, within a year of Queerest Folk being on air, there was there was great lesbian stories in, in a show called Bad Girls, over here, a prison drama called Bad Girls. And they didn't write that because they watched Queerest Folk. They wrote that because there were very strong lesbian writers who'd been on the same soap operas as me, pushing their way forwards, knocking on the doors, and then pushing the doors open and demanding to be heard. And at the same time, I've got to say, commissioners, people always say, oh, how'd you get that past the commissioners? And in my experience, the, and maybe I've been lucky, but in my experience, the commissioners are the ones sitting there saying, give us something new. Please, please give us a new story. Give us a voice we haven't heard before. I genuinely believe that's true. I mean, you could not, it's a... Drama is a wet, lefty, liberal industry. <laughs> you could not have anyone more gay-friendly or queer-friendly than a drama commissioner. It's uh, all of them. They're all like, yeah, 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 tell us your stories. They don't want to tell football dramas, do they? And, unless you go into the shops. <laughs> it's like, it's, it's what it's about. So it, there genuinely was a rise in a movement, and I happened to be the one who, cracking that first drama was quite a thing. Not that was the first. You know, there had been others, but but okay, it, it kind of does have a kind of 
pivotal place. And um, the key to it was, it's like, I remember sitting for a good six months in this house, sitting here thinking, how do you do this? And, you know, what I mean is, do you do it as a murder story? This is a young gay lad found murdered on Canal Street, and his mum comes to investigate and meets the community in which he grew up. You know, that kind of soft entry drama, or, you know, that, and, if, and the biggest decision I took, and thank God I did, and, and the boldest decision I took was simply to say, I don't need a murder. I don't need genre for this. I don't need that proscenium art. I'm just going to write about men who go clubbing who go out on the scene, who get laid at two in the morning, who are best friends, who grew up together gay. And it, the biggest decision of all was to say that's enough of a story, that you can yeah. get a story out of that. And once I clicked with that, once you look at a place like Canal Street is, is the big gay street in, in Manchester, and once you look at that and think, that's a setting, actually. That could not be, what, what's more... What more drama is there than men going out to get laid on a Saturday night? <laughs> I mean, that drives drive most of the world. <laughs> Gay and straight, going queer and everyone. It's like, that's a huge engine. That's a huge part of our psyche. Add alcohol, add music to that, and add, good, add a good cast, and you've got the most attractive drama in the world. So just, I literally think I'm lucky that I was the first person to realise that lucky or I was the first person who got hurt who realised that I'm sure there were plenty of unmade scripts sitting on desks where people I bet I, I bet the one thing I bet commissioners did say was well it needs more plot where's the murder where's the where's the detective do we have a gay detective um that that is all the commissioners therefore they fall back into those plans so to have so for channel Port to have the nerve to sort of say what's this about it's about life it's just about these gay men's life. There's a couple of lesbians in it. There's a couple of older gay men. I mean, this was 1999. There's no sign of a trans character. There's no sign of that. Forgive me. You were young. But, um, yeah. you know, the world took time well, to get there. Um, yeah. Well, we know that these, we know that these things, and with Hollywood, it's all about chipping away at things, right? And yeah. I think we're at this place now where the chipping away goes a lot faster because <laughs> there's so many ways for the audience to share their opinion opinion and to show the the producers what it is that they like and what they want to see. And so yes. the audience having a much louder voice these days, though it's a double-edged sword, one of the wonderful yeah. things is, yeah. um, you know, Hollywood has to take note that, like, yes. people are craving authenticity and people are craving to see a multitude of stories, not just the same ones told over and over from the same perspectives, or yeah. let's see the same stories that have been told over and over from a white, cis, straight perspective, and let's just let other people tell those same stories, but with, uh, but in the authentic way that's true for them. You know, Absolutely. like, what one of the things I love these days is seeing a queer take on a tried and true trope in Hollywood, a tried and true trope. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I love just seeing like the same romantic comedies that we've been inundated with our whole life. But now it's about queer people and there's an authenticity to it for queer people that like we've used to have to just kind of transpose or the yes. the straight experience, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And they, they, you're right, they do. And because uh, one thing, the sentence I keep on saying is the revolutions have to keep on happening. You do have to yeah. keep going, keep doing it. It's like something like Heartstopper comes along and I love Heartstopper. It's the most glorious mm. show in the world. I absolutely adore it. But um, there are some people my age going, yeah, didn't we do this? Like, didn't we break down this door 30 years ago? And actually, the whole new generation has been born. A whole new bunch of walls are set up. Every time the walls keep on rising. And, oh, yeah. and, actually, and I'm being cynical and Heartstopper does brand new things as well. But um, but you have to keep on doing it. I guarantee you in, in 30 years' time, there'll be another version of Heartstopper that will make the mates make the makers of Heartstopper feel old-fashioned. Um, you have to keep on doing it. And it's, happened, it's funny, it's happened with Queer as Folk. Queer as Folk is a kind of brand now. It's a title. And I gave it to a lovely, lovely filmmaker called Stephen Dunn, who was, who was a gorgeous man. And there's a new version of Queer as Folk now on Peacock that's got the trans characters. It's got all the sense of a more diverse cast. It's got all the things that we didn't even think of in 1999. It's a miracle we even got it made. And yeah. now he's got it made. And, you know, I hope there'll be another version in 20 years' time. Um, 
it, it's glorious. I love to see that rolling on me. There's no limit to the imagination. The brain doesn't, and the imagination don't get tired. That's what I always yes. say. Yeah, it's, um, you know, it's just, it's amazing to be at this time. And I think, you know, I think one of the big arguments for more representation is so that there isn't kind of what you were saying with Heartstopper, which I haven't seen, but Michael synthesized it for me. But um, uh, it's just kind of like we need, when you think of how much straight media is mm. produced and consumed. And you think of how much of it is bad. <laughs> but that does but one bad film about straight yeah. people doesn't mean they're going to stop making films about straight people. But for so long there's been this pressure that if we take the chance on a queer piece and it tanks, then it's like then no one's going to want to produce a queer piece again. I think we're getting to the point where we don't have to worry as much about that, you know, because we are now at the point where there is enough representation that we're starting to see, you know, yes. uh, not everything is as brilliant as the last thing that was made. And that's a good thing. It's and a good thing that we're producing enough stuff that there's going to be some bad stuff and that the bad stuff hasn't meant that we're not going to continue to create it. And it's funny because so, we're dying for representation. We're dying to be seen and strangely, though, once we reach this tipping point, we'll be able to shake that off because straight people have had hundreds of years of watching dramas and, you know, someone might be getting divorced and, and that person's not like them, but they don't, they don't, <laughs> they, they don't, they, they don't say, they, maybe they're not divorced, maybe they haven't got a drug habit, maybe they're not on the run from the police. Straight people don't sit watching dramas thinking that. They <laughs> love watching a divorce. They love watching a drug problem. They love people on the run from the police. So one day we'll get there. We we'll get beyond yeah. representation into just owning every story under the sun, and that opulence. Will be yeah, <laughs> we've got our enemies. There's many, but we're not. There's still plenty of people who want to start. I think I worry sometimes that we, you know, the get nice and happy liberals say we're getting places, and I think we could. You just only have to look at what's happening with governments <laughs> all over the world to see the backward steps. Uh. We're you know, I'll write Don't get me started yeah. on that. <laughs> We're too late in the episode for me to get started on that topic. But I do want I to discuss. Um, I do want to discuss. It's a sin, as you brought it up, and I was I, I watched it recently. Um, you killed off your Welsh character in that, but actually, you know, I learned in acting school. I played. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with the the play Our Town. I oh, yeah. one of the smallest <laughs> roles in Our Town, um, a paper boy who has one scene, three lines, and then when he gets brought up again, it's just to say that he's dead. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye, Grover's gone. <laughs> and I asked my my mentor. Um, um, Kira McDonald, who was my favorite acting teacher at school, and she's been my mentor since I graduated. But I, I asked, like, what do I even do? Like, I don't even know how I'm supposed to contribute to this show. I have three lines, and then I'm dead, and you never see me again. And I just feel like I don't even know how to make anything out of this. And yeah. I, I was like, do I just accept that it's a small part and stop worrying about it? And she said... Well, let's think about the most significant thing that happens to this character. He dies. <laughs> you know, we learn that he's dead. So for his death to mean anything, we have to love him. And if and so and we have to yeah, what's the opposite of death being full of life? So, how do you make in your one scene with your three lines, how do you make this character so lovable, so full of life that when we hear he's dead, it means something to us? And you fucking did that so brilliantly with the character Colin, the Welsh character Colin. I was a wreck. I was and so I'm so sorry for spoilers, but as you can as you can assume, there's quite a few tragic deaths in this series. It's beautifully written for someone who who was born and raised post 1980s AIDS epidemic. I was inundated with information, media, everything, especially coming out as um, young as I did. 
I was inundated with all of the history and education. That was just like, you know, when you grow up queer in the 90s and early 2000s, it had just happened and it was so real and so present. Nowadays, you know, I talk to people, you know, in their early 20s and they're like, what? <laughs> you know, it kind of feels oh. like they're like, oh, yeah, I heard about the AIDS epidemic. Oh, it's <laughs> <You> a <know>? okay. <laughs> so <laughs> so for you exactly for you to bring this back and not bring this back for you to, for you to make AIDS popular again no for you to bring these stories back and for you to create something that just every episode I was bawling not because of I mean the content is tragic and sad but it's because of the relationships, the writing, the the humanity. You fall in love with these characters, and then you have to watch them go through one of the hardest things yeah. that has ever plagued our community, ever plagued the world. Um, and the only reason it doesn't get brought up as like a world plague, you know, is because it affected the queer community, yes. and See, straight people were happy to just let us deal with it. So... Yeah. Let's talk about what it, what what was it like and how 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 much <laughs> did you have moments where you're like why did I take this on because you lived yeah. through that you lived through that epidemic. I have yes. to imagine there were moments where it pro- like the emotions that are that you're dealing with in that show and and the stories yeah. that you're dealing with in that uh, show. How did you get through it? <laughs> Uh, it was hard, actually, yes. And, and no one ever really asked me that before. It was, yes, it was very sad and upsetting and I had to not make it the saddest drama in the world at the same time. By the way, Callum, who played Welsh Colin, he's only mm-hmm. what is he, 24, 25 years old. He's now been cast as the MC in Cabaret in the West End. Oh, that's fantastic. Imagine, that's how extraordinary that boy is. I mean, no matter what happened to that story, it's his performance. I mean, he's so young. The MC in Cabaret at that age. I think that must be the youngest MC there's ever been. It it opens on October the 29th, and I'm going to be there, and I can't wait. I love him. But, yes, it was digging into all that because I thought it was kind of – I didn't just think it was being forgotten, but also there are monumental pieces of work talking about AIDS, like Angels in America uh, and Early Frost and uh, and stuff. But it's all very American. I didn't think the British story had particularly been told. It's, it's, I, I have to agree with you on that. I felt yeah. like when I was watching it, I was like, oh, of course. Like, of course yeah. they would have a completely different experience. And watching watching the news of it kind of hit the UK and oh, watching fuck. all of the... Watching all of the moments of like, well, I'm not American or I haven't yeah. been to America. I'm all right. You know, like... That mentality that, like... Um, That's literally what we used to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I thought that was kind of going unrecorded. I mean, a lot of people remember it. It's, I'm by no means the only person working in this world. But um, um, things like, like in the early 80s, we say, don't sleep with Americans. And you, you only get it if you sleep with an American. So therefore, you're fine. And you forget those days where the winter America was a big deal and we didn't have... We did not all have phones. Phoning someone in America was a big deal. Being a long-distance call was a big deal. It was amazing. So um, um, I, I thought that was in danger of not being recorded. Just as a little bit, I, you know, I did the biggest surprise of my entire life, and I have been writing for many years, and I'm old and I'm tired, drinks. but it's like, I kind of thought I knew how things work. And you get a sense of what will work and what's maybe a minority piece and what's a big popular piece, and I thought we were making a lovely, steadfast, noble, necessary record of what happened. And I thought it would be watched by the people who were there. And I thought they wouldn't like it because it didn't represent them properly. And a cat and a dog. We, we were kind of bracing ourselves for like the lowest viewing figures in history. Because it's about AIDS. Who wants to watch drama about people dying? Turns out... Something clicked, something, and I do think a lot of that is the cast, but it went the most magical cast in the world. Oh, you had a fantastic cast. A fantastic cast, um, just such a range of performances. 
every episode I was bawling and I don't like to cry. That's why I'm mostly watching comedy and cheesy horrors and animated. And Michael and I had to have a deal, you know, like if I watched all of It's a Sin, then I got to pick the next three movies and and he couldn't complain if they were all horror movies. Anyway, but by- It was a long time before you watched it, wouldn't it? It'd been out for about a year. Not that I was counting. I wasn't counting. Well, well, I'm just, I'm so averse to tragedy. And also, you know, like for the last, uh, at that point, the last year had been like, I had filmed Drag Race and then was waiting for it to come out. And I was just on pins and needles for 12 months solid. But um, let me, I mean, like, I just absolutely loved it. I didn't even mind crying my eyes out. There's there's like a video somewhere of me. I called Dela after one of the episodes, Vendela Creme. Called her after one of the episodes, mascara's running down my face because she had already watched it and was happy I was finally watching it. And I call her on FaceTime and she's like, what's wrong with you? And I was like, I just watched another episode of It's a Sin. Um, but oh, we should I have- stop. We're going to stop. <laughs> no, but what I want to compliment you the most on, and I think that it's going to sound kind of weird because there's so many things to compliment about that show and everyone listening. I mean, you can space out the episodes. I I couldn't watch, I couldn't binge it. We could only watch one episode a night because that was all I could take. But we watched one episode a night, um, every night until we finished it. And it was just, I was so glad that I watched it. Even though the subject matter's hard, even though I knew it was going to be having, you know, uh, having lost some people to HIV and AIDS, not the same to not the same numbers to someone, you know, in an older generation who had lost countless people, even, you know, you, you have it in your life at all. And yeah. it's difficult, you know, it's just difficult to wrap your mind around um, that. Like, why did this happen? And, <laughs> and how did it get that bad? And, so, yes. but then to be living right now where there's prep and where there's like more promise than ever at us, you know, like really stopping the transmission of this horrible yeah. disease. Um, it was amazing to watch it to remind myself that I can't take anything for granted. Like, and as angry as I am at the places where we haven't made the progress I'd like to see, it kind of put me in touch with, oh my God, what a great time to be alive as a queer person. Because even though, like you said, they're constantly trying to peel back our rights and our freedoms and they're constantly trying to raise the walls, we're still, you know, we're still in a better place than any generation before us has been in, you know? The the genie's out of the bottle, absolutely. The genie is out. I got sidetracked, but what I want to say is the biggest compliment I can give is Ali Alexander. I'm so in love with him. He's such a wonderful oh. person. Ali Alexander plays a character that I have known time and time and time again in my life, and I hate that person. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I've always been the goofy drag queen sidekick to the Richie Tozers of the world. Um me so, yeah, me so w- w- watching this, watching this effortlessly gorgeous, charming, endearing person just live his life and get fucked constantly, and I was like, "All right, all right, all right." <laughs> and then by the end of the series, I was so in love with him; my heart was breaking for him. The fact that you you wrote him so truthfully to that type of young queer. I have nothing to lose. I have everything to gain. The world is mine. I mean, and that's kind of what we were talking about earlier. For 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 Richie's story to impact us the way that it impacted me, we had to see that full journey. We had to see that that young, charming, gorgeous person with all the potential in the world start there, feel invincible, and then go through what he went through. And then, and then the ending is just so fantastic. And I turned to Michael and I said, 
and I don't want to spoil anything because I want everyone listening to watch it. But I turned to Michael and I said, I bet writing that ending to the show, every queer writer on this show was like, I finally got to say on television what I've always wanted to say. And it was so, it was unexpected. It was not the ending um, between those characters that I was ready to see because I've seen it timeless uh, time and time again. It was so satisfying because it was not what we've been fed every other time. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I'm, again, I'm going to call myself luck again because all those, all those other times you've been fed those stories, I've seen them. I've seen those gay films. I've seen those queer movies. I've seen those eight stories. I've been to the place. We're drawn to it. We're drawn to those stories, but partly we have a choice because it's always being told as a story because it's it's an important story. But I am fascinated. I, I would go and listen to it. So I was in a very unique position of like dis- distilling the best of those stories and working out what they hadn't done to me and, and working out where I hadn't been heartbroken. I would often, I mean, I think often those stories absolutely correctly and naturally are consumed with anger, which is a very right emotion, a very righteous emotion. We should be furious about what happened. But anger doesn't always make for great drama. It's, it's like sometimes you're being shouted at. I'm, I'm so not here to criticise other people's work. But I, I sat at this test thinking, there's the anger. Put the anger to one side. See where you get without it. See what interesting... There is anger in there. There's plenty of anger in there. But don't let that be... Don't let it be a shout. Don't let the series be a shout because other shows have done that. And so that's fine. So do something different. And yeah, that's what I headed towards. That's what I was heading towards was, was working out. I did feel... I did kind of feel... I did kind of feel I watched 100 AIDS dramas. I haven't cried enough at any of them. So that's like your reaction is exactly what I was aiming for. That's and I, so I, wanted brilliant. That, I wanted that in amongst a straight audience, actually. It's like, never mind us. We will we'll all move on to the next one. There'll be another one along next year. We'll watch it. We'll be part of it. We'll raise funds for all those causes. If they're for a straight audience, I thought I've got to get them in the heart because they're not gonna they're not gonna end up carrying placards. Weirdly, they did. Um, you know, the, the, the T-shirt that sold, the, the, the It's a Sin Lap T-shirt has raised over half a million pounds for charity. Just That's not an official T-shirt. That's not the, the channel selling a T-shirt. That's one man in a shop who watched it and said, oh, well, I like a T-shirt with that slogan on. And then... then uh, found himself trapped in his own slave factory because everyone ordered one. I think he's still there, buried underneath reels of cotton, bolts of cotton. <laughs> but, you know, so I see placards were raised in, in different ways, in modern ways, so by people raising money and then putting it towards the, the the AIDS charities and stuff like that. So it's a miracle. Look, all these things I'm talking about, I wish I wish you could have planned this. You never planned these things. It was success beyond planning. And to this day, I mean, it amazes me. And I'm so, and I, I come back to that cast. I, and they're, you know, they're properly all great friends with each other to this day. And we all properly oh, still, still text each other. And that's not always the way with most shows. You know what shows like? You move on and uh, you get people hungry to see them next. But I love that long. We all loved each other very much. I think something magical comes out on screen as a result. I love them. Yeah. We're nearing the end of our conversation, but I have some compulsory questions that I ask every guest, and I hope you're ready for them. All right. First question, who is your celebrity crush today? Today, my celebrity crush is, um, there's, it's that man in EastEnders, he's, I can't think what he's called, he's Sharon's brother, and EastEnders, I'll even so popular. And he's just I've never watched EastEnders. Oh my God, there's this beautiful <laughs> man and they take his shirt off every other episode and I'm very happy watching that. I should know my well, celebrity question name, shouldn't I? <laughs> That's terrible. I will admit that I have watched, I've watched entire um, seasons of a show just because someone was taking their shirt off often. Anyway. <laughs> um, my next question for you is, are you spiritual? I am not, and yet I think the world is stranger than we know. Yeah, I think that's beautifully put. I am spiritual, and I know the world is stranger than we know. (laughs) And I will will follow the Church of Jinx. 
You know, I, I, I like to call my philosophy common sensualism um, because I, 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 I basically just say whatever makes sense, the most sense to me. Um, yes. That's what I believe in. And then also... Sometimes I'm like, what makes the most sense is that I can't make sense of this. So I've just got to give it up to whatever, whatever's in charge. Um, my last question for you is, um, what is your go-to karaoke song? Oh, it is, um, uh, do you know what? It's Mary Hopkin. It's Those Were the Days, my friend. I mentioned it earlier. Because it's Welsh. Every Welsh person knows Those Those Were the Days. Those Were the Days. Mary I'm going to I'm gonna love that song. A playlist right after this because I had not thought of that song for a while. It became a Russian chorus to it. It's a very they went mad in the studio with that song. Real Russian choir sings in the mouth. It sounds Russian. I don't know what it is, but it's glorious. I will always sing that one. Where can my listeners find you on social media? I believe it's just at Russell T. Davis. Russell T. Davis 60. I'm only on Instagram. That's all. There is a Twitter account. I don't touch it because because (laughs) I'm on Doctor Who. It's not worth it. It's it's a battleground and it's an inferno. Oh, (laughs) my gosh. (laughs) <laughs> Sci-fi fans or something else. Um, oh, that's, that's um, world, and that's, that's, yeah. That's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, God not, bless like, them. God bless them keeping the genre. Um, I, I am one. I am that fan. I'm, <laughs> I'm watching She-Hulk have, tonight. I'm in. <laughs> have you watched, um, have you seen the episode of The Simpsons where Homer becomes a cartoon voice actor? Yes, yes, yes. They, they, yeah, and they're doing like oh, a, they're, they're doing like a panel discussion at a convention and someone says, <laughs> in episode 232, uh, Itchy plays Scratchy's rib cage like a xylophone and we clearly see him hit the same rib twice but it makes two distinctly different sounds. Are we supposed to believe this is some kind of magical xylophone? <laughs> and that's what I think of any time I see like uh, people on Twitter are pointing out plot holes. I'm like, oh, oh my god. god, did you enjoy watching it or not? <laughs> that's me, but also that's me. Every plot has a hole. Life doesn't have plots. There is no well, plot. There's no plot hole. That's a fact. Every single one because they're artificial. They're not real. <laughs> they are porous. It's true. Well. Oh, I, I hope everyone this. goes and follows you and 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 looks through your many many posts about the the thirty years and thirty series you've worked on. Russell, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you. It's lovely to have proper conversations. It's been good. I've loved it. Thank you very much. <laughs> you are a light in the world, darling. You're an absolute oh. light in the world. You are. Oh. oh, you do go on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, please. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you all so much for listening to Hi Jinx here on the Forever Dog and Moguls of Media Network. My name is Jinx Monsoon and we have new episodes every Wednesday. So make sure to search for Hi Jinx on your favorite podcast app and hit subscribe. You can follow me at the Jinx on Instagram or at Jinx Monsoon everywhere else. And I'll see you next Wednesday for some more Hi Jinx. To listen to Hi Jinx one day early and ad free, sign up for Mom Plus at mompodcasts.plus. Hi Jinx is produced by Moguls of Media, aka Mom, hosted by me, Jinx Monsoon, and produced by Joseph Shepard. Editing and sound design by Will Pitts, executive produced by Willem Belli, Alaska Thunderfuck, Big Dipper, and Joe Cilio.